Welcome to the May Pensions Podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes and Stitcher or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Graham Wrightson, a partner in the pensions team, and I have with me Dan Bowman, one of our consultants. Today, the topics we're going to look at include the latest developments on pension scams and a judgment on pension scheme investment, which could have far-reaching implications. Firstly, however, we thought it would be useful to run through the latest developments in relation to COVID-19. So, Dan, over to you. Thanks, Graham. So, uh, the pensions regulator, TPR, it's updated and supplemented its guidance uh, found in the COVID-19 section of its website. And there are a number of takeaways uh, from the new additions. Uh, With regard to communicating with members, TPR has provided guidance on its expectations of trustees and scheme administrators in relation to member communication during the the COVID-19 pandemic. In relation to scam activity in particular, TPR is requiring defined benefit scheme trustees and their administrators to issue a template letter to all members who request a transfer to a DC scheme. The letter is a joint communication that's been put together by TPR, the FCA and the Money and Pension Service and it explains the heightened risk of scams during these uncertain times. Uh, And it also makes it clear that in most cases a transfer from a DB scheme is unlikely to be in an individual's best long-term interests. The guidance also places a strong emphasis on the need for members to have continued access to member services and the ability to contact the scheme if they've got any queries. Uh, It explains that members should be kept informed and be provided with information which includes uh, the steps being taken to continue the running of the scheme, any changes, delays or disruption to member services, including reasons Uh, what steps are being taken to restore normal services and timescales, any temporary changes to service levels for processing member requests and the timescales involved, Uh, and finally, any delays to annual publications or member communications with a timescale of when these are expected to be published or issued. Where members make a request to cease membership, TPR also states that they should be informed that they will lose future employer contributions and that they may lose other benefits such as death in service and survivor benefits. And TP also uh, says that they should be told they can contact the Pensions Advisory Service for guidance. In relation to DC schemes, uh, members are likely to be concerned about the fall in the market and individual fund values. So where trustees or administrators are communicating with members over the next few months, particularly when sending benefit statements or uh, money purchase illustrations, TPR guidance lists a whole raft of information which members need to be made aware of. And this ranges from what current market volatility might mean to members retiring over different future time periods, the need to think carefully and consider getting investment advice before switching funds, and again, the danger of scam activity in the current climate. Well, COVID-19 is certainly keeping TPR on its toes at the moment. As well as extensive communication requirements, TPR is continually updating and refining its guidance covering the interaction of salary sacrifice, furlough, auto-enrolment and DC contributions. 
Fairly recently, TPR released updates to its general guidance for employers who contribute to DC Pension Scheme and issued new technical guidance focusing on the interaction between pension contributions, salary sacrifice and the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme, or CJRS. I think it's fair to say the technical guidance is generally orientated toward larger employers and sets out how an employer's pension contribution is to be determined in relation to a furloughed employee who participates in the employer's salary sacrifice arrangement and how an employer's claim for AE statutory minimum employer contributions against the CGRS should be determined in respect of each of its applicable employees. One key point to note from the guidance is that the CJRS grant must be paid to the employee as money and should be treated as post-sacrifice pay so that no further sacrifice is made on that amount. Therefore, to work out its pension contribution, the employer will probably need to determine the notional amount of the employee's pre-sacrifice pensionable pay. So as a general comment, the guidance is much needed, but some aspects are difficult to navigate, even for the hardened in-house benefits expert. Hence TPR's suggestion that smaller employers who operate salary sacrifice turn to their payroll advisors or pension providers for help. We also think that refinement and clarification of some of the examples in technical guidance would assist all employers. So Dan, is that it for TPR this time around? Well, actually no, Graham. TPR has also introduced easements on reporting duties and enforcement activity, and it's helpfully collated these various easements Uh, it's put in place as part of its COVID-19 response. In terms of the highlights uh, for occupational pension schemes, first of all, any delays in completing a review of a statement of investment principles for COVID-19 related reasons, that will not result in enforcement action provided the review is not delayed beyond 30th of June 2020. Second, if there's a requirement to complete a set of audited scheme accounts at this time, the deadline has been extended to 30th of June. And finally, the deadline for the requirement to report late payment of contributions, that's been extended from 90 days after the due date to 150 days. In terms of DB schemes, TPR's highlighted that trustees should be alert to the higher risk of scam activity, particularly in the context of transfer requests. And TPR suggests that trustees may wish to consider suspending transfer quotations for the time being. And TPR has also said it will not take enforcement action where a evaluation submission is delayed for up to three months after the 15-month statutory deadline. And TPR has also confirmed that the delay does not need to be reported to them. For DC schemes, uh, employers wishing to reduce contributions to the statutory minimum, they need, uh, among other things, to consider compliance with the consultation requirements. Ordinarily, this would involve a 60-day consultation with members and their representatives, but TPR has confirmed it will not take any enforcement action where the 60-day consultation requirement is breached, but that is provided certain conditions are met. Additionally, fines for any chair statement failure will continue to be imposed, but no new penalty notices will be issued before 30th of June 2020. And it seems that these easements will be reviewed in late May, early June to determine whether they will be withdrawn or perhaps maintained for any further period after June. So what we can glean from all of this is that in these turbulent economic times, COVID-19 has and will no doubt continue to have a real impact on all kinds of companies and their pension arrangements. 
given that markets have been so volatile, that volatility comes with an even greater risk of pension scam activity, as Dan's just mentioned. There's clearly a real concern that unscrupulous fraudsters will be working in sophisticated ways to lure vulnerable people in with early access pension offers, not missing the opportunity to prey on the anxiety and fear of savers and investors alike when they're already concerned about their financial positions. As mentioned earlier, the FCA, TPR and the Money and Pension Service have teamed up to warn savers against the very real risk of being targeted by pension scammers. Collectively, the recommendations for savers and investors are to reject all unexpected and unsolicited offers, get to know the warning signs, e.g. a high rate of return which sounds too good to be true, and usually is, and crucially, don't make any impromptu decisions about your pensions. Trustees and administrators are also expected to play their part in educating and protecting members and helping savers keep their retirement savings away from scammers. Practical things that can or should be done include having a scam prevention page on the scheme website, printing and including TPR's pension scams guide in the annual member statements and transfer packs, and conducting thorough due diligence when a member asks to transfer pension using the checklist and using the Combating Pension Schemes Code of Good Practice. In addition, the ScamSmart website directly assists in providing know-how from pension scams. The COVID crisis could not, in so many respects, have come at a worse time. Where pension scams are concerned, in a major report on the functioning of the UK pensions industry, which went out on 5th of August 2019, the Work and Pensions Committee commented that the FCA's dedicated scammers team only consisted of approximately 10 staff, out of a total of some 3,700 FCA staff, and that more needed to be done. Clearly, even with a modest increase in that number, there's a big question as to whether enough is being done at present and whether we should expect to see more in the pipeline to guard against pension scams. So, Dan, anything else you want to add? Just one final item to to add, Graham, and this relates to a, a recent appeal to the Supreme Court And it concerns the powers of the government to limit the factors which are to be taken into account by authorities as quasi-pension scheme trustees when they invest pension scheme assets on behalf of a local government pension scheme. So just to give a bit of brief background to this, um, the Secretary of State has power conferred on it by the Public Service Pensions Act 2013 to issue guidance to authorities on the administration and the management of their scheme. The Local Government Pension Scheme Management and Investment of Funds Regulations 2016 require an authority to produce an investment strategy in accordance with that guidance. In particular, the regulations require the authority's investment strategy to include how social, environmental and corporate governance considerations are taken into account. The guidance itself adopts two tests commended by the Law Commission for taking non-financial considerations into account when devising an investment strategy. First, does the proposed step involve significant risk of financial detriment to the scheme? And second, is there good reason to think that members would support taking that decision? Two passages of the guidance were the subject of this judgment. The first stated that the government has made clear that using pension policies to pursue boycotts, divestment and sanctions against foreign nations and UK defence industries are inappropriate, other than where formal legal sanctions, embargoes and restrictions have been put in place by the government. 
The second passage stated that authorities should not pursue policies that are contrary to UK foreign policy or UK defence policy. So what did the Supreme Court say? Well, it upheld the High Court's order that both passages were unlawful. It held that the Secretary of State acted outside of his powers by attempting to enforce the government's foreign and defence policies by providing that even where both elements of the test had been met, the scheme administrator was prohibited from making an investment if it was contrary to such policies. In short, the power to direct how administrators should consider the making of investment decisions did not include the power to direct what investments should be made. And just as a general comment, the judgment supports the Law Commission's position that trustees may take non-financial considerations into account when making scheme investment decisions. But trustees do need to be satisfied that such considerations do not pose significant risk of financial detriment to the scheme and that there is good reason to think that members would support the taking of the decision. So although trustees must comply with their fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the beneficiaries, and so you know financial returns for members will remain a priority, this decision could be uh, more far-reaching in paving the way for trustees to strengthen their approach towards ESG-geared investments. Thanks for that, Dan. Well, that's all for this month's podcast. Further topics and detail on all the subjects discussed can be found in our recent snapshot or you can get the information from your usual Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team contact. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative. And don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitcher, or on the Stevenson Harwood website or the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Hub. <laughs>